Chapter Thirteen of A Yellow Journalist by Miriam Michelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Howlett. A boss, a respected proprietor, and a whipping boy. How Miss Massey linked the three. But sensation? Whoop! Sensation's no name for it. Do you know what Rhoda Massey's exposure of United Powers Bribery and Corruption Fund did? It sobered McCabe. In a personal note to me, he congratulated me on being the best managing editor of the news, not the news's proprietor, had ever had, telling me I'd understand the distinction before long. He said he'd be back in a day or two and that in the meantime I should sit tight. I didn't know then on what. It brought our respected proprietor back to town in the morning, for the first time since I'd been on the news, with a copy of his own paper in his hand, and a face so scared that, really, I was sorry for him. It stirred the press to issuing an extra before noon, accusing Offield himself of having sold out to United Power, declaring that he had entered into a contract with Boss Bassett to abstain from roasting the company in the future, for the sum of $40,000 a year, to be paid in the guise of advertisement and special editions. It brought bliss of the evening mail over to interview our poor respected proprietor, and Offield, wriggling in McCabe's big chair with self-consciousness and discomfort, was closeted with bliss for half an hour, and then the newspaper man came out, red-faced and angry, leaving Offield white-faced and angry within. Why? That's what I asked myself when Bliss hurried off with a look at me that mystified me. What in the world could our R.P. have to say? I found out when the mail came out. There it was, spread on the first page. Offield puts blame on his news editor, Theodore Thompson. Oh, for all the typed bombshells, big and little, that I've let loose over unsuspecting heads in a long career black with printer's ink, I paid when I saw that lie in print. I knew then how it feels to be the woman who cares for the man in the case. And care, oh, I cared so much that I could have better borne the whole world's reviling me than that one miserable voice should doubt him. And here was the one thing that comforted me. There wasn't a man in the local room, and Ted had been brought in from a rival paper, remember, and put over every head there, that did believe it. Even Bowman threw down the mail, with its double lead story, and cried out, Oh, that's too thin. I gulped when I heard that, and tore in two the discharge note I was writing him at that very moment, and instead I sent him off on the Quillinan story, the cream of the day's details. It was just then that Gibson, the business manager who had happened in, sang out, Well, it may seem thin to you fellows and it's decent of you to stand up for your own order, but if you'll watch things from now on, you'll notice that Thompson's dead journalistically. There isn't a paper in the state that'll dare to hire him. Oh, yes, I know all about his cleverness, but he'll have the reputation now of being altogether too clever, and there isn't a newspaper proprietor in town who, if he gave Thompson a desk, wouldn't have an uneasy doubt that he was grafting instead of, "'Instead of leaving the grafting to the respected proprietor himself,' I burst out, charging into the hall after him. Gibson stared at me aghast, 
and his stare brought me back to my senses. After all, I added, it's a proprietor's own paper to have and to sell out, to lie about and cheat and blackmail with, if he wants to be that kind of man and own that kind of paper. You're right, Mr. Gibson. There's only one man on a paper who's got its columns for sale. The rest of us are only freelances, who uphold the particular journalistic banner under which we happen to have enlisted, stoutly ignoring the spots and blotches on it, and swearing stoutly that its black is white and its white is dazzling purity. But all the same, there's one thing neither Mr. Offield nor any other newspaper proprietor can do, and that is to use one of his men, and a man like Ted Thompson, as a whipping boy when his own sins are found out. "'Bravo! Bravo!' came in a shout from the boys in the local room, banging vigorously upon their desks. "'Speech! Rhoda Massey! Speech!' Gibson looked calmly at me. "'Have you seen the contract signed with Thompson's name, Miss Massey?' he asked. "'No, and I don't believe—' "'Oh, yes, I have,' he interrupted. "'I have seen it. Would you like to?' "'No, no!' I gasped, when I had quieted something inside of me that seemed to be crying aloud. "'You see, Mr. Gibson, a contract Ted had signed wouldn't make the least bit of difference, for of course he signed for Mr. Offield with Offield's knowledge and under Offield's orders.' Mr. Offield had given the whole management of the special edition into Thompson's hands, Gibson said quietly. There happened to be one man in the business office who was connected with the business end of the special edition. I discharged him this morning. Poor fellow! I exclaimed wrathfully. Our R.P.'s sin must be a mighty big one since it calls for two whipping boys to suffer for it instead of one. Only... Only Ted Thompson won't take the whipping, Mr. Gibson. I'll bet you on that. And I turned and went back to my desk. Haughty? Not a bit of it. I was shivering in my boots. Ted's word against Offield's. That would be how it would stand. There wasn't a working newspaper man in town who'd have hesitated for a second which one to believe. But working newspaper men don't own newspapers. It's working millionaires who do that and the public is what they work, and newspaper men are what they work with. And Ted Thompson has to have a newspaper. It's the tools of his trade. And how, how in the world was he going to get his name clean again? Savagely, I pulled out a sheet of paper from my desk with the newsletter head at the top. Mr. Charles Staniford Offield. Dear Sir, I wrote, and then Peter banged at my door and, throwing it unnecessarily wide open, laid two cards in front of me. Ben Bassett. The top one's announcement was like a challenge. It had a bulldog brevity and sternness for all the world like the face of Boss Bassett of United Power. Senator Archibald Leonard Newberry's card, which lay humbly beneath, hadn't half the imposing force of the top one, and yet since his election Newberry had been made president of U.P., I looked at those two cards. The men whose names they bore must know the truth of this business, the most serious thing in Ted's life, and mine. They don't want to see me, Peter, I said peevishly. Oh, yes, they do, he said. When they found Mr. Offield was out, they asked for the managing editor. I told him he was off, on a vacation, 
Then they asked for the fellow that comes next. I told him he was off on a vacation. See the difference, Miss Massey? So then I told him the city editor was holding the fort, and they said they must see him. All right, send them in, I said, and went on with my letter. Oh, I say, in the midst of all my misery, it was good to see the start those two men gave when they saw a woman city editor instead of a man. And because that start flattered me and insulted my sex, I looked up in a preoccupied way, told Peter to set chairs, and begged them to excuse me for a moment as I had to attend to a matter of the utmost importance. And it was important, mighty important to me. I was about to join the only club I ever belonged to, the ex-city editor's club. The way you go about joining it is to write a thing like this. Mr. Charles Staniford Offield, Dear Sir, I herewith present my resignation as city editor of the news, Kindly relieve me at your earliest convenience. Rhoda Massey I rang for Peter. Take this yourself, Peter. Don't trust it to anybody else, I said, sealing it in an envelope. And rush it. I want an answer as soon as you can possibly get back. Understand? He did, and was off. And he seemed, with that envelope, to take a part of me with him. But I hadn't time to think of that. I just grabbed the telegraph blank and scrawled. Ted Thompson, Fisherman's Point. Come back quickly, Teddy, and let's fight it out together. R. I rang for a messenger of the other company, so that my message shouldn't go through the hands of Graves, our telegraph editor, and then brushing back my hair, I turned to those two big fellows. And they are big fellows. They hold the town and the state in the hollow of their hands. They know all the secrets of politics, all the follies of the press, all the weakness of the public, and yet they might have it all, for all of me, if they'd give me one little hint that'd clear Ted Thompson. "'My congratulations, Miss Massey,' Newberry began pleasantly. He'd been watching me with an odd mixture of amusement and respect. "'I didn't know the news had a lady city editor.' "'Thank you, Senator.' but city editors don't last long on the news, you know. I laughed and rattled on, telling him about the ex-city editor's club. I didn't tell him I'd just joined. Why not? Because any information relating to his own office must be in the hands of your R.P. himself before a white man has any right to speak of it, and because your boss is black is no reason for you to match him in color. That's why. But Newberry laughed with me, and even old Bassett grinned appreciatively as I ushered them into the next room, Offield's, where we could talk undisturbed. "'We have been looking for Mr. Offield, Miss Massey,' Bassett said at last, speaking with his usual deliberation. The boss is a man of elegant leisure, if you believe the tone of his voice. "'It is rather essential that I should see him, but he's not down at Burlingham. He's not at the hotel, or says he is not.' And though I have telephoned a dozen times, I can't seem to catch him here nor at the club. Hmm, I remarked. That being the case, just why did you come to call, Mr. Bassett? The boss looked at me sharply, but Newberry interposed suavely. We thought, we hoped you might tell us where Mr. Offield is. It happens to be as important to him as to us that we should meet. There are times, Senator... I said with a smile, when no one on the paper knows where Mr. Offield is. 
"'Yes, I know,' Newberry agreed with a knowing smile. "'Times of stress when Mr. Offield, like a certain great military commander, "'reposes full confidence in the officers he has left behind him. "'But past experience has taught us that there is always one person on the paper "'who knows Mr. Offield's whereabouts. "'Mr. McCabe knew.' "'Mr. McCabe is—' "'On a vacation, yes, I know that, and so is Mr. Thompson.' but it is simply incredible that at a time like this Mr. Offield should not be in touch with the office. It is almost certain that the next person in authority— He stopped suggestively. I sat there a moment, cogitating. A boy or two came in with proofs, a card, some telegrams from McCabe, which I tore open and sent orders to Fairboy about, and I had to answer the phone twice. But all the time I was thinking in the back of my head, and when I turned to him I was ready for him. "'I think, Senator,' I said at last, "'you'll have to take me, part way at least, into your confidence. You don't know me very well, and—' "'Oh, pardon me,' he interrupted graciously, "'but I have a lively memory, Miss Massey, of certain obligations up at Sacramento during the last legislative session.' "'But, Mr. Bassett,' I began with a smile, remembering the part the Bassett List had played in the story that landed the senatorship at Newberry's feet. "'My dear young lady,' the boss said softly, "'though I have always denied the existence of such a list as you published, and, as you know, the senatorial investigation resulted in a vote of confidence in the accused senators, still, all this does not preclude my being capable of admiration for a good fight well fought. I take off my hat, therefore, to Miss Massey, both as journalist and as pugilist. We all laughed at that. Coming from the boss, it was meant to be excruciatingly funny. Old Bassett was immensely pleased with it himself, and we had quite a little love feast there in Offield's private office. All right, then, I said finally throwing out my hands. Now, hands on the table. I may know where Mr. Offield is, and I may not. In either case, he's my respected proprietor, and, as it's evident he doesn't want you to know, I wouldn't tell you if I could where he is. The only thing you can do is to trust me, as you would have to trust McCabe if he were here. Then I'll forward your terms to Mr. Offield, making sure, of course, there's no leak. And as for myself... "'No, you've got to take me or leave me. "'I'll give myself no letter of recommendation to you or anybody else. "'Now this is how we stand. "'Treat me as you would a man who's entitled to confidence "'by virtue of the position he holds, or... "'Well, frankly, let me get out the paper. "'There's a lot to do.' "'What a pity! "'What a pity you're not a man, Miss Massey,' "'said Bassett, rubbing his chin reflectively.' "'Not at all, Bassett,' interposed Newberry gallantly. "'What sort of a man is it that would wish such a girl as Miss Massey not to be a woman?' "'It's awfully nice of you both,' I said dryly. "'But just now I'm neither man nor woman. "'I'm just a temporary managing editor. "'What's your business with the paper, Mr. Bassett?' "'That reached him, straight. "'Without another word of preliminary, "'old Bassett drew his chair up close to the desk.' put his elbow on the corner of it, and giving his short, stiff hair an aggressive rub upward, he got down to business. "'I want from the news, Miss Massey,' 
just what the senatorial investigation gave Allen, Kenefi, and those fellows up at the legislature. I want a vote of confidence in united power. That's what I want, and I want it to be the leader on tomorrow morning's editorial page. Phew! I exclaimed thoughtfully and sat there a second looking right at him. Of course, Mr. Bassett, I went on when I got my breath, there's this handicap for me in talking with you. I don't know just where U.P. and the news stand. I did know when I was up in Sacramento all right and knew just how my story of the Bassett list would be received at that time, but that's some months ago. Still, I do know, it was common talk at Sacramento, you remember, how much that vote of confidence up there cost United Power. I do know that that amount won't buy the editorial columns of the news. His small, twinkling, cold eyes positively warmed to me. "'You're quite right, Miss Massey,' he said gently. "'If you'll pardon me, I know that even better than you do.' I laughed outright at that. It was such a facer. "'Oh,' I said, "'I'm beyond my depth, eh? Well, as I understand it, you want me to tell Mr. Offield that an editorial—' "'Not un—' "'Editorial, Miss Massey,' the old fellow interrupted in a quick and positive voice. "'Not any editorial, but a strong, confident editorial, with a backbone and an unmistakable intention, not only to show belief in what it says, but to take sides. In short, I want a thing that, as you've said, can't be bought, and more that doesn't sound as if it had been bought.' I stared at him, but admiringly. No wonder he's Boss Bassett, a man that's got the audacity to ask a thing like that. I'll tell Mr. Offield, I said. I'll tell him just what you say. Thank you. He got to his feet, and so did Newberry, and we stood there a minute while Fairboy came in to get me to okay the payroll. There's a quality in Mr. Offield, or a lack of it, Newberry said slowly after Fairboy had gone which makes him susceptible to the manner in which things are said to him, and, and which makes him most responsive to the last argument that reaches him. Eh, Miss Massey? One more confidence, if you please. This isn't for publication, but you may have it to print first when the time comes. I am going to buy a newspaper here in town. I think I am going to buy the news. I need it, and... Why? I burst out. Offield will never part with it. It's his dearest vanity, next to his new bank. I know, he smiled, and yet I have hopes of persuading him. I looked at him. Blackmailing a blackmailer. That's what I wanted to say, but I didn't say it. The blackmailer happened to be my boss, till Peter should come back. He did come back just that minute, bringing me my unopened letter of resignation. "'Not in,' he said with a significant look as he went out into the next room, McCabe's. Ooh, but the sight of that overdue letter made me cross. I had so counted on getting away, I stood there frowning till Newberry said softly, "'Well, Miss Massey?' I looked up then. The trouble with me is that it's so hard for me to put my whole heart and soul into two different schemes at the same time. "'You've got a lot of things to attend to, haven't you?' he went on lightly. 
"'It's unconscionable of us to take up so much of your time. Three editors in one, aren't you, today? You must be a valuable newspaper man, Miss Massey. When I get the news, I hope I'll have the benefit of your services, too.' "'I got it, then. Oh, I got it all right, though I had been a bit slow. But you see, it was the first time. You hear tales of the bribes offered to reporters, but I've always said that the newspaper man whose professional honor is so often in danger is of the same breed as the woman whose virtue is constantly threatened. In all the days and nights, too, that I've been running round the town hunting stories, the villain still pursued her has never bothered me. I was too busy, and he probably guessed as much. I am valuable, Senator, I said to him then. Not so much because I know the business from the ground up and serve my apprenticeship under a good master, if a hard one, that's Bowman. No, the journalistic woods are full of experts. It isn't that, but it's because I happen to be honest. I may serve a scrub, but so long as he's my employer, he gets the best service that's in me. I'll give Mr. Allfield your message, but I'll tell him— and in the absence of my superiors, I'm the nearest thing to good newspaper judgment he has to rely on, and he knows it. I'll tell him that he'll ruin the paper if he does what you want. That it'll be a virtual confession of the truth of the press's story, of course, and that he might have saved himself that lie about Ted Thompson if he in... in ten... Newberry's start stopped me. Of course I had done it. It wasn't in me to say Ted's name and talk like a managing editor. I had to let my voice quiver like a goose, and the red come to my cheeks, and be filled with rage at the world while I spoke. "'Miss Massey,' Newberry said, and there was actually respect in his voice this time as well as eagerness. "'I really think we might do business together.' But I shook my head loftily and marched to the door to show them out. Afraid of his tempting me? Not I. If the mere thought of getting in with him and fighting for Ted from behind the fort of United Power didn't do it, what more could Newberry add? He went out, but Bassett stopped just a minute, and under his breath he said, You will say whatever you please to Offield on your own account, my dear young lady, of course. But that very clear conception of honor, which, permit me to say, I find most admirable in you, makes me confident that you will also deliver my message with this addition. United Power wants that editorial, but Mr. Offield would be more anxious even than ourselves for it if he knew what good ground we have for demanding it. Tell Offield just that. I stared at him. Jove, that was pretty straight. Is it a threat, Mr. Bassett? He hesitated a moment. "'You and I need not label it, need we, Miss Massey?' he asked finally, with the utmost good nature. "'What I beg of you to convey to Mr. Offield is that we hold a trump card which he had probably forgotten, or of whose existence he was unaware, when he gave that interview to the mail this morning. "'Good afternoon. Thank you. My apologies for detaining you.' I stood there petrified. The elevator went down, taking them with it, and still I stood there. I seemed caught, by the magic of a little thing called duty, in a net of inaction, chained to a bewitched spot, where there was nothing to do but to stand and look on while these men of power and wealth played at a game whose stakes were Ted's honor and— 
and my heart. I really suppose I might have been standing there yet in a daze of paralyzed emotion if I hadn't felt a light touch on my arm. Quickly I turned. Offield! Our R.P. it was, with a finger to his white lips, and a hand on the door, which he shut quickly behind me while his furtive eyes drew me inside. And yet, when he'd got me in, he didn't seem to know what to say, but threw himself into the chair at his desk and played with an envelope lying on the blotter before him. "'Just what does Bassett say?' he asked at length. I began at the beginning. "'Yes, yes, I heard that.' he interrupted in a matter-of-course way. "'You—' "'In yonder,' he nodded toward McCabe's room to the right. "'Oh!' I exclaimed. "'Then you know the sort of editorial he wants?' He nodded. "'Would you—' he began. "'You wouldn't. "'I heard what you said about it. "'You were in earnest. "'You think—' "'Think!' I cried. And I waited right in, then and there. I sketched the kind of roast United Power ought to get, written in the style channel our editorial writer would put it. Oh, I haven't been reading those hummers of his all these years without learning something of his way of saying things, of roasting rogues and seeming to enjoy it. And I put the thing with all my soul. Something in me was crying out against myself all the time. But it only made me throw myself into the business all the harder to drown its cries. To convince him, that was my duty. To make this uncertain-eyed, hesitating scoundrel see the thing that would pull his paper and himself out of a hole, that would speak louder to the town and the state than any other thing he might do or say or not say. And he really began to glow, himself, with enthusiasm as I spoke. I could see his back stiffen with every smashing thing I imagined channel writing. "'And if you don't do it and do it this way,' I cried at the end, "'you might as well run what Bassett wants, the whole of it, and just as he wants it. "'It won't hurt the paper a particle more than keeping still about the matter, "'or running a water-on-both-shoulders editorial, "'and in the bargain you gain U.P.'s goodwill, if that's what you want.' "'I was hoarse now from talking and from temper. "'I wanted to cry.' to sob aloud and tear things, and instead I had to stand there and talk sense and newspaper honor to a man that knew little of and cared less for either. But my last sentence caught him. Newberry had gauged him right. "'But what do I care for United Power's goodwill?' he asked defiantly. I looked at him. It was like him to bluff to the last, to lack the virtue of frankness to the end, and even with those he would finally be compelled to trust. "'Well, of course, you know better than I,' said I, with a shrug. "'Or perhaps Bassett knows.' And then I delivered the end of the old boss's message that he had whispered to me at the door. "'My! But it hit him straight between the eyes. He caved. He went to pieces. Falling back in his chair, he turned from white to red and back again. And then suddenly... All at once an idea seemed to strike him. Quickly he bent down and unlocked the lowest drawer of his desk. The drawer was full of traps, I could see that. Photographs, proofs, letters, all sorts of truck. He passed all these over with hasty, trembling hands, and from under the heap he drew a typewritten sheet of paper, marked and interlineated here and there with red ink. 
The sight of it seemed to comfort him inexpressibly. He read it over. He kept fondling it. And then he looked over the top of it and saw me watching him curiously. "'Just have Channel in, Miss Massey,' he said with an embarrassed smile, "'and give him the points of that editorial just as you've given them to me.' And tearing the paper he held twice across, he threw it into the waste-basket. Bewildered, I rang for Channel, or I suppose I must have, for he came in, his pencil behind his ear, his pipe in his smooth-shaven, big, humorous mouth. We talked the thing over, and Offield, quite restored, sat all the time at his desk suggesting a more damaging punch or a heavier smash in the intervals of opening and reading his letters. But really I was hardly conscious of what I said. My mind had gone clue-hunting. What was the thing our R.P. dreaded? What was the thing that reassured him? And what good in God's world would it do to me to know the answer to either question, seeing that I couldn't make any more use of such knowledge than I had of Bassett's plain talk from the hills or Newberry's insinuations? It was Offield's voice that broke in upon us finally. "'You're sure that you've got it, Mr. Channel?' he asked. In his dealing with us, our R.P. always has the idea that people who write are deficient in good sense or lack some of the senses. We're hard of hearing, slow of understanding. At any rate, we're not acute in the way that businessmen are. "'Very well, then. Give it to them hot. The hotter shot you pour in on them, the better you'll please me.' So Channel left and Offield turned to me. He must have spoken twice before I heard him. I was so busy thinking, but I did finally get the grieved surprise in his voice, and waked to find him standing before me, my own letter of resignation, open in his hand. "'Why, Miss Massey,' he began. I jumped to my feet. "'Oh, yes, yes,' I said. I'd forgotten for a second about that, but it goes. "'But surely—' "'But surely,' I smashed in. I was sore with suffering but mighty glad at last to vent some of the hurt on someone, preferably, oh, most preferably, on our R.P. Surely I don't have to work for a blackguard if I don't want to. The letter in his hand rattled as he stood staring at me. It dropped to the floor after a minute, and he turned his back on me and walked over to the desk. You take advantage of your sex like other women, he said, nervously busying himself with the things on his blotter. Just keep the desk till Bowman comes in, if you please. When he relieves you, you may consider your resignation accepted. I nodded and hurried out of the room, but the door I opened clashed against the door of the telegraph room as Peter came in with a message for me, and as I turned to take it, I saw Offield go down on his irreproachable pearl-gray knees, fish about the waste-basket, gathered together those four pieces into which he had torn the typewritten sheet that roused my curiosity, and embarrassed now, for he caught my look of amazement and scorn at his actually thinking me capable of stealing his secret out of the waste-basket, crushed them back into the drawer he had originally taken the paper from, lock it quickly, and seizing his hat, make for the elevator. But really I was not so acutely conscious of what he did, and oh how little I cared, the telegram I was reading sang itself over and over in my ears, flowered before my eyes into the most delectable sight on earth, and filled the world, my world, with its perfume. 
Am coming, sweetheart. Sweetheart. Do at 8.30. T.T. If I could, I'd have stood and dreamed over that all the hours it spread between him and me. But every scandal in town seemed to break loose just then. First there was the grand juries ignoring the charges against and exonerating United Power. Phew! How Bassett must have worked and paid for that. Then word came from the hall of the arrest of Eustace Man Lloyd for the unspeakable Drexler murder. And right on top of that came a wire from Bowman that Quillen and the stage robber had been surrounded by a posse, and a desperate fight was now going on. I stuffed that precious yellow message inside my waist, and then the whole office rolled up its sleeves and sailed in. How we worked that night! I had my dinner sent in and nibbled bits of things as I danced from the local room to the telegraph room. Besides keeping half a dozen phones going and every man in the office pulling with a will. And we did pull together. I like to think that that last night I held the desk, we were good comrades, the boys and I. All trusty soldier sailors, manning the good ship the news. All fighting the same battle. All eager for but one thing. To win. The men had forgiven me for being a woman. My victory the day before had won me that and I'd forgiven them for being so silly as to resent sex in a city editor. And perhaps you don't think I was jolly glad I hadn't discharged Bowman, when he phoned in a long-distance description of the fight and an interview with a dying bandit, which closed with a line like this. It's exclusive, you can bet on that, Miss Massey. I'll leave Cottrell here to stand guard over Quillen until he dies, with orders to shoot any reporter that catches up with us and we'll swear that Quillinan did it before he passed in his checks. It's lovely, Mr. Fairboy, just lovely, I sighed happily when there came a period of calm. My hair was tussled and my face was dirty and burning with excitement, but I was so content. It only lacks one thing. Oh, if one could only telegraph pictures. We might fake one and label it, from a description, Fairboy hazarded but I wouldn't have it. It's a time's record trick, I said disdainfully. That reminds me, he said, of the only time the news ever did it. It was when you were up country, Miss Massey, and the whole office was in despair because we couldn't get a picture of pretty little Dorothea Chipchase. So we faked a drawing of that scene of you with her, remember? And the next morning, when the agony was all over, we found that she'd sent her photo to Lowenthal when she wanted to go on the stage, and Brockington had shown it to Miss Massey. Yes, yes, what is it? To Offield, who actually had had it in his desk all the time we were scurrying round for it. You know that queer collection of his, of beautiful women's faces and ugly men's, and Quillen is such an ugly brute, possibly. Come on, I cried, we'll see. The only difficulty about being a woman managing editor, even for a night, is that you haven't strength enough to force locks. But Fairboy had, and the way he pried open one after the other of those drawers of the boss's desk would have joyed a burglar's heart. The place looked like a wreck when we got through, but do you think we cared? There in the bottom drawer was the picture we wanted. It was old and probably looked more like Offield himself by this time than like Quillinan, but it was a picture. I cleared away the torn pieces of paper that had covered it, gave the precious thing to Fairboy to take up to the art room, 
and on my knees before the desk began to put back into the drawers the things we'd tumbled out. Not that any newspaper proprietor in his senses would object to his desk being rifled for the good of the order, but that he mightn't be charmed with its being left all at sixes and sevens. My, what a lot of truck Offield had got together! Such odds and ends! Such a queer collection of unnecessary trifles! Such, such... Suddenly, as I was in the very act of replacing them mechanically, my eyes fell on the four pieces of torn paper Offield had thrust back into the drawer a couple of hours before. Oh, it was plain then, very plain, his perturbation, his reassurance, for in my lap, in four sections, indeed but otherwise intact, lay a typewritten copy of the contract between the News and United Power, annotated in red ink and in Offield's own handwriting. Yes, by our R.P. himself. Oh, you dear thing, I sobbed, laying my cheek upon it lovingly. You dear, honest, true thing. I sat there on the floor, comforted merely by the touch of it. Oh, just a big sheet of copy paper to back it. A pot of mucilage and five minutes' work, and then... Then the door opened behind me, and Offield came in. End of chapter 13